0: are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast
1: with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, a part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Terry McGlynn. He's a professor of biology, and we're going to talk about his work uh, regarding insects. He's an ecologist, an entomologist, and also a science policy communicator. He's the director of undergraduate research and professor of biology, all of this at uh, California State University, Dominguez Hills, and a research associate, specifically in the Department of Entomology. So Terry, thanks for coming. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, tell me a bit about your uh, research and your
2: interests. Yeah, so I work on ants, and so in general, I uh, study, as one person put it, and I, I like the way this, the experimental natural history. So when I, I work mostly in this rainforest in Costa Rica, where there's like 400 plus species of ants that do all kinds of amazing, cool, bizarre behaviors. And so there, when I see something that doesn't quite make sense, and I go, what's going on with that? And so then we design experiments to try to unravel that problem and to try to figure out how things
1: Oh, well, so you don't deal with local ants, but you focus on uh, a forest in Costa Rica.
2: Right. Yeah. So, local. I mean, I do a little bit of local work, but I have, there's a, a field station um, where many North American, Central American, South American people all work in Northeastern Rica. And so I work there on a regular basis, um, bring a lot of students down there. And so that's like this one patch of forest is the one where I've spent you know, more than 20 years.
1: Well, the, the local ants are not exciting enough for you?
2: Yeah, you could say that. I mean, so when people talk to me about, uh, well, why do you study ants? Like, What's up with ants? I mean it's you know, the cocktail party conversation, which is a totally legitimate question. And I would say, well, I mean the ants I think are inherently cool and interesting and have we have a lot to learn from them. But when you go to a rainforest then you see that ants really run the place, that ants are everywhere. And there are so many kinds of ants uh, performing every kind of ecological interaction and many kinds of behaviors. Whereas here, you kind of have to look to find the ants. Whereas in the rainforest, the ants find you. And and so they just like put questions in your face. Um, and so oh. uh, there's just, you know, that's just so exciting to me.
1: Yeah, you said they have very interesting behaviors. So what are the what are some of the interesting things the ants do in Costa Rica when you spend your time?
2: Well, so I mean the things that people that catch people's eyes right off the bat. Well, first of all, there's leafcutter ants. And so leafcutter ants create these long trails and have colonies of like a quarter million ants some uh, and they go up trees and they cut massive amounts of leaves it's estimated that about half of the herbivory the plants being chewed upon and eaten comes from leaf cutter ants but they don't eat these leaves they bring these leaves underground to a massive garden and in this garden it's a fungal garden and then they eat this fungus and so whenever you see these big you know one of the first things you see in many rainforests in the Americas Um, in the Western Hemisphere, is you'll see these long trails of leafcutter ants just carrying. Another kind of uh, ant that catches people's eye right off the bat are army ants, which are big massive roaming predators. And so the discovery, army ants, you know, the world's you know top predator like you know the number one most dangerous predator jaguars or polar bears and they roam the forest floor and some species of ants they'll just eat whatever kind of critter that come upon them and so they have these quick running trails they carry their own brood with them they sleep in a different place every night and so again like once you see a trail of army ants, like oh my gosh that's amazing what are those ants and so while we do have army ants here you know they're very hard to come up they're mostly underground
1: is there anyone that ants, people that study ants, looks to historically that was like the father or the, or the mother of uh, studying ants?
2: Well, the one person that people mention all the time is E.O. Wilson, Ed Wilson, who wasn't necessarily the, the first person to study ants, but, um, but he is himself a very famous biologist. And for all the different things he worked on. All, he applied what he learned about ants to many different of questions of ecology. And so everyone's like, oh, have you heard of E.O. Wilson? It's like, oh yeah, of course, yeah, at Wilson. And so a lot of people, even outside the world of ants, look upon Wilson, you know, scientific hero. You know, some people have called him one of the greatest scientists in the 20th century. If you talk to ant people, some people have their, their favorites, you know, the things that they work on. So there's a scientist named Mary Talbot um, who actually worked in Chicago for a while, and so she arguably founded some of the uh, major ideas and experimental methods in the field of physiological She studied how individual ant colonies perform and looked at uh, temperature and, and colony interactivity. And she was a great natural historian.
1: Okay, I gotcha. Hey, well, what first sparked your interest in ants, and how long ago was that?
2: You know, so some people are, you know, the the kind of entomologists where they like had their own bug collection that they studied insects when they were little kids and, you know, uh, that was not me. I was not an entomologist when I was a kid. So when I went to college, I was, um, a pre-med or I, I was in, actually, I was in, I was initially a psychology and philosophy double major. Cause those both sounded good. I wanted to understand how the brain worked this, what it is I'm trying to understand how it just, you know, from our, the flesh of our meat of actually feelings and consciousness. And I still think that's an interesting question and neurobiologists are working on that. But then I took intro to philosophy and decided that wasn't for intro to psych and realized biology. thought, oh, I'll just go to med school. Being a doctor sounds financially stable kind of thing. And then when I was interviewing for med school, I was like, holy crap, I don't want to do this. Um, And then I had this kind of epiphany where I was taking classes in biogeography, insect biology, biostatistics, evolutionary biology, conservation biology, and all these things were super exciting and academically interesting to me. And I realized, oh, I don't have to... I can study this for a living. And so, and at that point I just started reading the literature, trying to figure out what I wanted to study in graduate school. There's this one lab I really was really interested in working in because they were working in the evolution. Of, and, um, and I read all their papers and they worked on ants and I just got drawn into it. So it was by pure circumstance. So it could have been someone who studied butterflies or someone who studied, you know, something about chromosomes, um, you know, or G mutations or anything else. I just, it just happened to be ants and now you know obviously i love ants but it's not like i've been a trap but now that's what i do
1: yeah no that's really cool what is it about the ants that uh you're trying to figure out are there particular hypotheses you have or what's the focus of your study
2: yeah so there's in general if i were to try to find a common theme of all things that i i, I work on it's what is the how do how do ants respond to changes in their environment which is a very but that's because ants like all organisms are always in nature are subjected to environmental challenges and ants often have creative and interesting ways of of addressing those challenges and so i just find something weird and want to figure out how or why so for example i was doing this studying, doing this one field experiment, uh, and I note it, and I would put flags in front of the colonies. So I would look at a whole bunch of colonies and I'd flag them to look at them later to do experiments. And there was this one ant that, uh, with its name is a as it did not have it. And, and I was like, I would come back every, day to do something new to these colonies but then the colonies just kept disappearing like there was a hole in the ground and i would look inside and you could actually see the ants inside the hole if you take a headlamp and to poke in you could see the ants hanging out in this nest and the ants were just gone and i thought is my experiment making them move or are they just dying or this is weird normally think of ants living in a hole in the ground that's where their nest is and they live there but over the course of this experiment over 2 3 weeks i lost most of my colonies they just were gone and i was like well why where did they go why did they do this and so then i it didn't take long for me to figure out that they actually just were moving to a new hole somewhere within like a, a meter or two and and i thought and i ran a whole series of experiments trying to figure out, well, why would they be moving from one hole to another hole? And the, it turns out they keep moving from one hole to another hole to another hole back to the same hole. And so they have like three or four different nests that they whole nests that they will live in, but they only live in one nest at a time. It's like a rich person, you know, who uh, has a condo in Tokyo and a condo in Paris. And they just move from one to the other, but they only occupy one at a time. And the other ones are just empty, waiting for them to occupy. And so... And I thought, well, is it because they're competing with their neighbors over space and they're trying to, you know, maintain their territory? And so to make the really long story short, the answer that I came up with as best as I can tell is what's happening is nest, just like all ants, ants communicate primarily, they use eyes and they use vision, but um, their sensory world and their communication world involves pheromones, chemicals that they release. And so ants have a smell and this smell apparently accumulates in this nest and they have these relatively open nest cavities and these odors apparently attract army ants and so most army ants it turns out what they eat are other ants and so the biggest enemy of ants are other ants because army ants will roam into colonies and mostly steal the brood the babies the larvae and the pupae and then take them as prey and eat them. And so, yeah. And so these ants keep moving from one nest to another because their nest accumulates their odor. And it's a trace odor that, that it's not really easy for us to smell at all, but the army ants clearly smell it. And so the more brood they have, the more they create, uh, the higher at risk they are from losing this brood. And then what they do is they'll maintain more nests and the larger the colony is, then the more often they'll move because they accumulate this odor more often. And so if they move once a week or so on average, then that means that the odors of the nest are going to decline to the point where the army ants are going to have a lot harder trouble finding them.
1: Before we continue... the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show. How come the army ants can follow them like bloodhounds and go to where the smell is strongest and then you know, follow the trails and get them?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, so I think they, and sometimes they do, but I think they reason. so it's essentially, it's an evolutionary arms race where the ants are trying to avoid being detected. And then the army ants are obviously trying to detect them. And so when the smell in their colony hits a certain threshold then that's a signal to them that they need to move and so again sometimes it works but oftentimes but sometimes it doesn't because army ants still do attack them but i've spent you know many many you know weeks in the field w- with these ants and i've only seen a colony get actually attacked by army ants a few times whereas far more often i've seen army ants go right past an entrance and they just don't see it so, they're doing a pretty good job of avoiding. I mean, so army ants don't eat just this one species. These army ants will eat many, many different species of ants. And this is this one species strategy. Okay,
1: very interesting. So, the forest that you go to, is it pretty expansive? I mean, are there other groups that are there? Or is it, uh, do you guys have free run of the place? Like, what's what's it like in your interaction with the government and with other people yeah. and creatures in the forest?
2: Yeah. So, it, I mean, sociologically, like, I think it's an interesting place. And so, it's a field station where, So a field station is a place where biologists will travel to um, and usually, you know, and there's kitchens or you get fed and it's basically the resources are there for you to do your science and be able to focus on doing the field biology. And so this field station has been established essentially since the 60s, 70s, and it's grown since then. And it's one of the largest field stations uh, in the new world tropics. And so it's estimated that every two or three days a publication comes out from work being done in this forest. And so what's great for me is I primarily work with undergraduates in college, many of whom don't have much field work experience, And so by taking them to the field station, they get to interact with a whole bunch of other scientists. So there's a lot of Costa Rican scientists and technicians who are really experienced people who work there and the Costa Rican staff who work in the field station. And a lot of my students at Dominguez Hills um, speak Spanish. And so that helps them feel more at home, interact with, that's a construct. And, And so I have an office down there, which I keep my equipment in year round. And it's basically like a large storage closet, right? And so I can show up and then just get to work right away by, unpacking the office and we have you know field boots and field clothing and microscopes and thermal cyclers and sampling gear all ready to go and so they basically serve you three meals a day and so then you'll see other scientists you know at these meals and you could go out in the field with them if you want you know there's a couple laboratory buildings and so you know and then i've been working there for so long that i'm friends with a lot of the. although with the pandemic it's now been like a year and a half but normally i'm there you know oh
1: when are you supposed to go down there again
2: Oh, I don't know. Hopefully I'll be able to get down there this summer, but I haven't yet to make plans. So right now it's uh, Jan- mid-January and, you know, I don't know when I'm going to get a van. You know, the field station is open and ready for business, but I'm not sure if I'll be able to take students down. You know, life's been complex, but hopefully it's up, right? I mean, during the pandemic though, I've had... I've accumulated so much data from previous experiments we've done in the last several years that I haven't had a chance to write up and analyze and publish. And so I've been focusing on doing that. And so honestly, I don't need to go back down to start a new experiment. Um, I was in the middle between experiments when the panic hit. So fortunately, I didn't have a big project get destroyed except for some long term track. And so we'll see. Hopefully I'll get down this summer. But if not this summer, then probably next January.
1: So you said ants run the place. What do you mean? they're they're responsible for for what kind of activities
0: if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to
2: subscribe and review us on itunes they perform like if you think of um, all different kinds of ecological interactions um, ants are probably involved in and so ants eat plant eat the trees eat the plants but they also protect plants from being eaten by other herbivores Um, ants are predators of not just ants but all other kinds of organisms there are and ants often will cycle the soil you know they turn the soil around in large quantity they will collect nectar from plants some of them are even pollinators um, ants are major dispersers of seeds and so many plants um, produce aleosomes these little um, nutritious bodies connected to the seeds that the ant will attract the ants to collect those seed to collect those seeds and carry them away and eat that aleosome and then the seed sits there and it, then it disperses location um, there are some ants that Obligately live on plants which means that they have they can only some species of ants can only live on these plants and these plants have grown Have cavities within them where these ants have evolved to live within these cavities and defend the tree and the tree in response Provides them food and have a partnership in that way and There are if you just were to break open twigs on the forest floor Some some of them have ant colonies living inside them and so wherever you go you will find ants underground in the leaf litter, collecting leaves, living in trees, foraging the canopy, and they eat at every trophic level as you know predator and they serve as prey. So if you're trying to understand ecological interactions in a whole forest, by looking at ants you can sort of have a good picture of many different kinds of interactions that exist.
1: And you said there's how many different estimated species in that forest in Costa Rica?
2: if I recall correctly, I think it's like 427, which is kind of amazing that we can put a number like that on there. But there's this one scientist um, who's now at the University of Utah, Dr. Jack Longino, who spent a good chunk of his career working at this field station with the goal of tracking all of the ant diversity in this one particular place. And so this forest is, has about 50 kilometers of trails. You know, it's essentially, it's a 10 kilometer 10 kilometer grid ish or so and they've he and a crew of people have been sampling in this forest for a long long time work to identify and describe new species from this particular place and so it's actually compared to almost anywhere else in the world it's really easy to identify ants in this place because of the taxonomic foundation he's laid and so i think he's identified 427 species that live there. Not all of them have names. Some of them have yet to be described to be Solenopsis species JTL-007, for example, but most of them have names. And so sometimes the fact that a species isn't described doesn't mean we don't know it exists. It just means that no one's gone through the trouble to the process of describing. So yeah, it's kind of amazing that there are just so many species there. Whereas I think we have about uh, a hundred yeah. species of ants in all of California.
1: So what are, I don't know, what are some of the really unusual species that you've run into or at least heard about? You know, in
2: terms of behavior or or niche. Yeah. So the the Aphenogaster, which I sometimes am now calling the itinerant ant, the way they move around that behavior, I find interesting. Another ant that I've been working with is the thieving ant, uh, the Latin ruidum, which is a super duper common ant all throughout the New World tropics from Mexico down to Ecuador. And it was discovered a couple, several decades ago, that this is one of the only species of ants that actually has, steals food from neighboring colonies uh, of the same species. And so there are some ants that make a living by stealing food from other ants, but, but usually they're sneaking food out from different species. While these ants have this really bizarre social structure where if you were to, so the, if you're trying to find an ant colony, what you do is you give them a piece of food and you follow them back to their nest. And so, so if an ant will accept a piece of food you know, if it's roaming around and foraging, it'll just be in a, you know, sinuous traveling circuit that doesn't seem to have much pattern. But you give it a piece of food and she'll usually walk in a straight line back. And so with this colony of ants, if you give them a good piece of food, once they go into their nest and you wait outside two seconds, five seconds, maybe up to a minute, sometimes this food pops out and there's a different ant that takes that food and walks in a straight line to a different nest and then carries it on. So it turns out these ants have thieves waiting inside the nests of neighboring colonies just waiting for good food to show up and when that good food shows up then they take it and they bring it back to their own and so all and so if you were to look at an area where there's all of these ants nesting and they often nest in really high density so you can have a whole bunch of nests all um, but they're not connected all distinct then all these ants will just be swapping food back and forth from them i did this experiment where i removed those thieves experimentally, where because only a small number of individuals, these thieves, do the food removal. Most ants don't do the food removal. It's a specialized cast. And so once you remove all these thieves, then it turns out the productivity of all the colony goes up. So it actually, by stealing, everyone steals from their neighbors, but as a result, everyone is worse off. And if you're just to remove that thieving across the board, then everybody benefits.
1: Can you tell the thieves, are they phenotypically different? Or uh, how do you identify them?
2: You just can tell, they don't look any different Although they might have less muscles, but that's an interesting thing I'm looking at. Um, But you can only look at the muscles inside of cutting them open. So they look all the same, but you just identify them on the basis of their behavior. But so once you identify someone who is thieving, then you can mark them. And by marking the thieves, then you can figure out that most ants are not thieves. And so, and then once you remove those marked thieves, then you don't see anyone else stealing for a couple of weeks until they start creating new.
1: Oh, yeah, that's really strange, bro.
2: Yeah. I think so that's like the that's like that's been my approach to doing research, which is like, oh, that's a strange thing. We don't understand. I'm trying to figure that out. And so that's a question I'm still working.
1: On. Have you ever looked at the uh, microbiome of the various ants? Are you able to get at that or has anyone, you know, looked at it?
2: Yeah, no, I've I've done a bit of work on ant microbiomes. So if you're familiar with bullet ants, um, which which are one of the largest ants in the world, they're absolutely. And they're large. They're, you know, maybe like up to a couple inches long perhaps they they have a very painful sting which is why called bullet ant really really, really hurts when they sting you they have a very long st- series of venom and so these ants nest at the base of rainforest canopy trees, and they forage up into the canopy and they collect nectar. And so you would think that these bullet ants would be like some kind of, you know, voracious, scary predator. And they do eat bugs once in a while, but mostly, and actually, and actually they eat leaf cutter ants, but most of their food, like 80% of the food items they bring into the nest are bubbles of nectar that they collect from the canopy, mostly from extra floral nectar. So the trees secrete sugar to attract these ants up there and patrol the canopy. And the tree then basically is feeding the ants to train them to patrol the canopy. But if they find an herbivore or someone disturbing the tree, then attack this as well. And so one of the mysteries that people have had about rainforest ants for a long time, especially the ones that live up in the canopy, is that they are functionally herbivores where most of their diet is nectar. But if you look at it, and nectar has almost no nitrogen in it at all. It's just sugar water. There are some amino acids in it, but very low concentration. And so then how is it that these ants, which are, you know, bullet ants are 12 to 14% nitrogen. And so if they're eating a diet of very, very low nitrogen, where is, where is that coming from? If mostly if they're collecting sugar. And so I, and a student of mine, mostly it was her master's thesis, uh, Hannah Larson. So she studied bullet ants in the rainforest for a year by tracking a large number of colonies looking at what food they were collecting and then she fed experimental colonies different kinds of diet some she gave extra sugar and some she didn't treat at all obviously controls and then some she gave extra protein to so she gave them extra leafcutter ants to as a protein supplement essentially and so and then then she would look at a microbe that was in their guts which is a nitrogen cycling microbe related to bartonella which is a microbe that helps animals convert nitrogen from one form that's less biological and that's more. And so so there's this microbe that she found in the guts of these bullet ants that is associated with the ones that are being fed sugar. So if you give them more sugar, then they have more of this microbe. And if you give them um, more protein, um, and if for colonies that get most of their nutrients from that protein source and not from that sugar in an experimental treatment, then the, those microbe, the prevalence of that microbe drops off in their gut. So clearly, these ants that are having a higher sugar diet have more difficulty getting nitrogen, and so they need more of these end cycling microbes to help get nitrogen from their diet and from the there's a lot more people doing all kinds of cool work with ant microbiome especially with the ones that are n limited and so n being nitrogen so n limited means that their diet the the limiting factor in their diet is nitrogen and so if you're an ant so if you think of the three kinds of you know major nutrients you know there's carbohydrates and there's fats and there's protein and so proteins um, have a lot of nitrogen and fats are basically a fatty way of storing which is not as a, but then carbohydrates is where you get the energy that's where you get a bond and so ants that are eating these carbohydrates can have lot they can have lots of energy to burn by its fuel essentially but they can't build new tissue because you need that nitrogen you need the protein to build new tissue and so like you just can't you know subsist on cola alone at some point you need to have something that has nitrogen like piece of broccoli or meat or something, but something that isn't pure sugar. And so that's true with these ants. And so ants that are, have a primarily sugar diet need to get nitrogen from somewhere, but still it's nitrogen N is the limiting quantity in their diet.
1: Okay. Gotcha. it makes sense. So um, are there any microbes that have been discovered that are very unusual you know, to ants, especially the ones that sting and have venom?
2: Yeah. Well, it turns out, so yeah, so people might've thought that maybe the reason that bu- bullet ants have such a painful sting is that because nutrients they they have they're so they have so much tissue and they're so bulky that they really need to defend their resources with a painful sting but then again there are some other ants that are ecologically very similar that don't really necessarily have a big sting so the so far we do know of one ant that actually is capable of or two ants Well, one ant is capable of taking atmospheric nitrogen, just N2 in the air and fixing it and turning it into tissue. And that's the the turtle ants um, in the genus uh, Cephalodes. They can actually take just raw nitrogen and make it into biologically available. For a long time, people thought it was only like leguminous plants that could do this, like beans and other trees. They would have these nodules in their roots with these microbes that were capable of doing this nitrogen cycle. But now we're finding in nature, in all different kinds of places, in hydrothermal vents in the ocean and the guts of ants, And in corporate and also with fungi on the gardens of leafcutter ants are capable of taking atmospheric nitrogen and building tissue out. And so I think that's super cool. And so if you're actually they're also really good at recycling other kinds of nitrogen. So in general, most animals can't use urine pee. Um, because it's the they don't have biochemical mechanisms to be able to convert that urea into uh, an amino acid but cephalotes the ones that do the nitrogen fixation the best way to find them is you can put out like urine baits and so if you were to go on trees because they typically live in trees and you put out little tiny cups of urine um, or like a urine soaked rag or something then that will attract the cephalotes because they actually collect that and so presumably that works because they're collecting you know guam from birds and bats and also like maybe pea that other animal you know, mammals would bother right. so so that's oh. really cool that that you know because these living in a tree uh, it's so hard to get nitrogen that these ants will go to you know have evolved all different these relationships with microbes that give them the ability to acquire this nitrogen in a way they wouldn't otherwise we
1: yeah that's super interesting it's amazing all the things that these creatures do do, um, have you figured out the mechanism by which they fix the nitrogen? Do they do it um, like on their carapace, or do they breathe it in through holes? And it, like, where does it go, and how does it happen? Do you know?
2: Oh, it happens in their guts. And so, if you look in the structure in their guts, uh, what happens is there's a, a filter between their social stomach and their non-social stomach. So, because ants will do trophallaxis, where they feed food one another, and so the the proventriculus. This is not thing that I've worked on, but merely I've read about from people I know in the world. of ant- On the one side of this proventriculus, the part of their gut, it's a filter that lets the food through, but the microbes don't fit. And so the social stomach is in the front and in the back is where that nitrogen fixation happens, where they can fix their own nitrogen. And so it turns out that this filter only establishes within a few weeks after the ants hatch from being a pupa. And so the way that these ants and these ants have special nitrogen cycling microbes in the tail end of their digestive tract that you don't find in the front and so how do they get there and it turns out that these ants do um the cephalodes, these turtle ants do anal trophallaxis meaning they basically they they poop some uh with with some of these microbes and the other ants when they're when they're young shortly after they're born will then eat these microbes and the microbes will colonize the back of the gut then this proventriculus filter forms to prevent other microbes from entering that region and so it's like a special garden inside the gut that is protected from other microbes where they can perform this night fixation and so and these microbes go along with it and they've evolved to serve this function. and so there's yeah, a combination of social behavior where that they use to to pass on these microbes from one generation to the next
1: what about in um in bullet ants that they have venom are there microbes in the venom sac or where the venom stored. Has anyone looked you know, to see if there's a localized microbiome there?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if anyone's looked, not to my knowledge, has anyone looked at the microbes associated with the venom. I wouldn't be surprised if someone's working on that. And there are so many people studying ants in the world now, which is really exciting, that I'm sometimes I miss new paper. But it seems that the microbiome of the bullet ants that people have worked on is relatively unsophisticated compared to some other ants um i mean there's some interesting things going on but you don't have some of these highly uh, microbes that you have in some of these other tree ants and so the venom i think it's just just like wasps and bees produce venom so bullet ants the the venom sac as far as i know the but the the venom is particularly potent um and they spend a lot of energy to create this mm-hmm. yeah
1: are you able to track ants when they're in their nests you know tag them somehow with like a little bit of i don't know marker fluorescent paint or, I mean, I know ants are strong and can carry things, but has anyone made sensors small enough that they could be attached to ants?
2: Yeah. So there's different ways that people study ants, right? So people do both, but you can study ants in the laboratory or you can study them in the field. And it's possible, but really, really difficult and there's limitations to study what ants are doing inside their nest in the field, obviously. And so a lot of times when people are trying to understand colony level processes about interactions between ants and what they're doing in their nest, they bring them into the lab and then you can put them in formicaria, which is just a fancy word for like a like an ant form. And with really large ants, you could like, you know, glue numbers to them. But the way that most people do this is that you paint them. And so you can paint them with, with dots. And like, so even with really, really tiny ants, you can use paint pens and just put dots on their back and those dots will stay f- for many many months you know and if you just use different colors in a different spatial arrangement You know, if you just have a triangle of three colors, you can assign this one is ant one, this one is ant two, this one is ant three. And so you can track potentially hundreds of ants. It just takes a lot of work to mark them and to videotape them and follow them all that. And so when I follow ants in the field and try to figure out what's going on with the nest, I I could do a crude paint job in the field. You know, I could just paint a leg or paint different colors on their back. So like, for instance, if I wanted to see all ants that are foraging in the afternoon, I'll just paint everyone who's foraging in the afternoon. And then I can dig up the nest that evening or the next day And see geographically where they are positioned inside the nest ring, you know, which I've done in some experiments if you're just trying to look at how ants divide labor. But in general, yeah, people will paint them. There are also people, there are chips that people can use, like RFID tags or small tiny chips that you can use to track individuals that people are, you know, that you can fit on a honeybee and large ants. Um, Some people have put QR codes on the backs of ants now, too. Um, Then you can track them with cameras. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's really weird. How do you paint an ant's leg? How do you get to that? How do you grab one without hurting it? And How do you stop the ant from struggling?
2: Uh, well, it just takes practice. Well, I mean, if we're just I mean, so these ants are big enough. The, the, the itinerant ants, the ones that I've been in the and also the thieving ants, you know, they're like about 10 millimeters long, you know, so they're they're not uh, that they're not tiny, tiny, tiny ants. And so. It, the main thing when you're painting an ant is you don't want to get the face or the antennae and you don't want to get the spiracles and so the spiracles are on the section that's right ahead of the butt um, and there's these two holes and that's where the ants breathe because the ants don't breathe through their mouth You know, they breathe through these holes and Um, which are near their abdomen. And so if you block those spiracles, then they can't breathe. And obviously that. And so as long as the paint avoids those areas, then the ant will probably be okay. And so if you just graze one of the leg with, um, you know, a paintbrush or a twig with some paint on it, then that'll just get stuck on the leg. And as long as you don't use too much and it's not overly gloppy, then then that will probably, if you, I if you use like testers enamel, like just model paint, then it lasts for a few days before they rub it all off. And that's a good temporary way of just doing it in the field. But if you're just handling ants in the field, you just have to, if you just, just like handling other animals for people who work with bats, or if you work with, you know, any other kind of, you know, animal that you have to hold, like if you just get a rodent, right? You just have to have experience handling it to make sure that you don't hurt it. You need to have a firm touch, but obviously not too firm. You just need to know the amount of pressure you need to exert to trap them in place. And if an ant has a very painful sting, then you clearly need to do it differently. We also have these forceps where if you grab a couple legs, then it can pinch those legs in place and you can just hold the forceps and you can just immobilize the part that you need to move. It. So I guess basically, just like with all other things, just a little bit of experience.
1: Have you been able? Have you ever been able to tag dozens or hundreds in a particular colony, and and you can see the colony dynamics on a on a you know a mass level?
2: Yeah, that's not the the work that I've done. Usually, what I've sometimes done, like with with bullet ants, for example, or with the itinerant ants or the thieving ants we want to know the differences between everyone who forages outside the nest and the ones who are not for example and so or the ones that are eating a sugar diet versus the ones that are and so then we would mark them but we wouldn't give them individual level marks just because we're going for scale and so there's essentially there's like a trade-off between how many individuals you mark and keeping track of all those individuals and then what you're measuring. And so so for the people who do experiments where you're tracking the movements of many individuals inside a colony, right? So let's say you have a colony of 200 ants and you've marked every single one and you wanna study the interactions. That, that adds up to a lot of work really, really quickly just watching videotape or having someone watch them for many, many hours at a time. You know, labor intensive, which means it's very expensive, you know, or have to have very dedicated volunteers or something. And so the kinds of questions that I'm asking ecologically don't involve that kind of work. But if people are trying to understand the mechanistics of behaviors within a colony, then, yeah, you'll have a small number of colonies in the lab where you have every single individual marked. And so people, there are now some, um, a few specialized uh programs that people have written to track the interactions of ants inside ant colonies that's a thing that people are doing now using marked individuals you and the programs are you know sensitive enough that you can track the marks on individual ants to know their identity i mean just like how we have facial recognition for people now then it's not that hard to have recognition for marks on ants So, yeah, I think that's super cool work. And so we can see, you know, how some, for example, there's a scientist, uh, Dan Charbonneau, who studies so-called lazy ants. And so he marks every single ant in the colony and then spends then measures what kind of work these ants are doing and how much work they're doing or whether or not they're not doing work and finding that most ants, actually, the majority of ants actually are not doing anything all the time, they're just in reserve. And it's not that they're nursing or defending the colony, they're just literally sitting there, which opens a lot of questions about why is it that you have all these ants sitting there not doing any, yeah.
1: So, um, you know, last question or two, what, um, what don't you know yet about the ants that you know, at least has occurred to you to test uh, that you're really hot on trying to figure out what are some of your latest hypotheses yeah. that you're looking at?
2: Um, so my big, right now, what I'm particularly interested and concerned about is climate change. Uh, so if you were, there's a, a, a group of people who've been all over the world who've been studying ant biodiversity. For the last 20 years, we've been making very careful measurements of the biodiversity of ants and from the rainforest to really really hot dry deserts and all other places in between. And so we are now facing a future climate that is going to be hotter than we've seen. And so right now the hottest places in the world have a generous biodiversity of ants. Even if it's not that moist, you have a lot ants often thrive with heat. And so deserts have a lot of really cool ants. But what happens when those deserts get hotter than they are now. So the future climate will have places in the world that are hotter than anywhere that we see right now. So in other words, if we want to understand the biodiversity in one location, how it might change fifty years from now as it gets hotter, then we could go to a warmer place and find out what that looks like. But if you look at a desert which is already really hot, then what is it going? How is about ant biodiversity going to respond when it gets even hotter? So essentially, we're entering, you know, a world where we don't have an analog. Or there's no, we don't know how these ants are going to be able to tolerate that, and so. I think understanding the physiology of ants and how they'll be able to rest- respond to extreme heat. What species are going to disappear? Are some species going to forage more nocturnally? You know, Are there going to be the plant resources that they require? Is seed production going to drop off? How is it going to hurt them? Because a lot of desert ants collect seeds and that's how they store seeds. And um, So that's one of my pressing concerns is to understand how biodiversity is going to be res- uh, in deserts.
1: Very good. Well, Terry, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go?
2: Yeah. So my website for my lab is leaflitter.org, L-E-A-F-L-E-R, because I study leaf litter. I'm on Twitter at Ormiga, which means ant in Spanish, R-M-I-G-A. Um, And I have a blog called Small Pond Science. Where
1: Very good. Well, Terry, it's been really interesting. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Thanks for your time, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.